0: That's okay, I'll can introduce. i introduce myself, it'll be fine. Cool, let me get to go? Yes, yeah, Awesome. Um, I really apologize about my voice. I got COVID like 11 days ago now. I am not contagious, but I just can't breathe properly. Um. So that's what's going on here. I really hope that I don't stop halfway through and have a coughing fit. I'll do my best. If you don't understand what I'm saying because you can't talk properly, stop me and let me know and I will repeat myself in a weird squeaky way the way that I'm talking right now. Um, So first off I want to thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I feel very much like an interloper. I'm in civil engineering here at Queen's. I started in January. My background is actually in applied math. I study climate change. I care a lot about the earth. I'm mostly focused on permafrost um, and I think that's how I ended up here today. Um, So I'm really excited to talk to you about climate change in the north where I study it. Prediction, well, not so much because it's already happening. So more like observation, some mitigation, and unfortunately, some application. And I'm going to talk a little bit about where this works and where this might not work so well. Now, before I get too far into this, I want to give a little bit of acknowledgement of place. So currently today we're situated on Anishinaabe Haudenosaunee and Huron-Wendat Territory i am super grateful to live in this beautiful place. I've been here almost a year now, and I am so grateful for the stewardship that these people have put into this land for millennia, and I'm really joyful to be able to share this territory. Now, when I try, when I do my land acknowledgments, I try to learn something new myself about the territory that I'm either visiting or that I reside in, um, and today what I've brought to you is this piece of art um, from Deborah Vincent. She's bear clan and um she's a proud member of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte. She resides in her ancestral community of Chindanega, the Mohawk territory. And this art that you see here is inspired by the Great Law of Peace. Has anyone heard of the Great Law of Peace? Seeing that you folks study law. Yes, does someone want to tell me what it is? Excuse the Great Law of Peace is what guided the six nations within the Haudenosaunee Shelly to live in greater harmony with one another and the place where they a beautiful law, right? And it it really inspired me to learn about that, that this great law of peace existed so long before we're coming up with things like the UN that's trying to tell us how to live well together. So absolutely, and I also really appreciate that so many folks in this room actually know that answer because talking to engineers. I never ever get anyone answering any of my questions. So this is this is wonderful. I, this is a great audience. Okay, so in that context, <clears throat> I want to talk about climate change and climate inequality, the ways that people are feeling the impacts of changes differently. So here's a bit of an outline of where I'm going to go today. So I'm going to present the problem, and I wanted to present to you the solution, but I have to put the brackets in there because it's not really the solution. There isn't one yet. Um, so we're gonna talk about climate inequality, the far north and permafrost, um, and the impacts of climate change on those landscapes. Um, then I'm gonna visit some mitigation strategies through engineering approaches and wrap up with sort of our adaptation next steps what this is going to look like in the future. So climate inequality. This is um, from the International Panel on Climate Change, their sixth report. You can see that this area for 1.5 degrees warming, we've already seen 1.4 degrees warming. Um, we're really probably going to surpass this. It's a super optimistic to put this graph up here, but hey, let's look at it anyways. This looks like the distribution of warming that we're seeing globally. We're seeing this extremely amplified near the poles, um, but also some really hot spots near the equator in communities that are already really stressed Um, and are already in very hot environments and are struggling and don't have the capacity to adapt to these changes. Um, This stays kind of the same when you move over to what's happening to our precipitation, right? So it's not just the temperature of the earth that's changing, it's also what's falling from the sky, how intensely that precipitation falls, when it falls, and whether or not we can use that to drink and grow our crops. Um, And so with the same 1.5 degrees C warming, you can see that there's that kind of intense dark blue areas around Equator, lots more areas subject to drought. And we also see that amplification of precipitation near the poles, um, which often leads to increased heat capture. I may or may not talk about that later, depending on how much time I have, but the fact that it's raining or snowing more near the poles is not actually good. Um, so these communities, we talked about the ones at the equator, the communities that live in the far north are really quite vulnerable to these changes, it's a very harsh landscape and these changes that we're seeing makes it even more difficult to live there. So if we think about the far north, what makes this place unique? Well, these communities are highly isolated. Um, They generally have some really lovely traditional food sources, which are often very strongly impacted by climate change Transportation there is super challenging um, access to resources, health care, um, all of these things are really limited. Um, and this means that there's sort of these pandemics of mental health. Um, there's huge suicide rates in these communities because of this isolation. And they're very, very vulnerable to changes that are going on. Now, One of the changes and the areas that I study the most has to do with permafrost. So permafrost is ground that is at or below zero degrees for two or more consecutive years. Right. So essentially, it's just ground that never actually thaws out in the summer. It's kind of a little bit deeper. The top layer might thaw underneath that. You've got permafrost. It's not thawing. It underlies 15 to 24 percent of the northern hemisphere. Cool. That's actually a pretty big number it's actually 50% of Canada is underlain by permafrost. There's a ton of permafrost. And yes, we have these remote isolated communities. They have their own challenges, but these challenges are really closely linked to permafrost because as we can see, so this is kind of a map of the areas that are underlain by permafrost. Those are the areas that are warming the fastest. So this isn't the projected change. This is the measured change. Um, So between 2010 to 2019, versus the 50s to 70s average. Some of these polar Arctic regions, they're warming at four times the average global rate. So what does this do to the landscape? Well, what it does is it kind of does the same thing as when you're changing the seasons. So if we start off with a cold landscape, we've got these trees here, it's nice, cold, white, shiny. The spring comes, it warms up, it gets a little bit darker. In the summer, hey, it's still a really beautiful landscape, but that's a black color. And I want you to imagine that this dictates the color of t-shirt you're wearing. So what's happening in the Arctic and the reason that it's warming at four times the average global rate is because instead of wearing a white t-shirt outside on a hot sunny day, you're now wearing a black t-shirt outside on a hot sunny day. And it's warming much, much faster. Now, there's a lot of contributing factors, but the albedo, which is this process here, is really responsible for a large part of this change. And so this really dictates, okay, so what's the temperature at the surface? But if you heat up the top of the soil, that's going to translate downwards and impact the layers underneath that permafrost. So what are these impacts? What is changing in this system as we heat it up? So here I've framed all of these different impacts in terms of movement. I call it movement because these isolated communities that have existed there for a long, long time are to an equilibrium that contains permafrost. We figured out their traditional food sources. They figure out traditional water resources. They've understood how to live in these landscapes. And now this is changing. So this is a disequilibration of the system, and we're seeing all of these movements from that average. So first off, let's talk about land movement. So when we lose permafrost, what does it mean to have land movement? Well, here we're actually changing the structure of the soil. So here I'm putting on my engineering hat, and what happens when you thaw out permafrost is that you actually change the volume. So if you have that glass of water in front of you and there's an ice cube in it, it's floating. Why is it floating? Well, because it's less dense than water. There's a 10% difference in density between liquid water and ice, means that ice floats. This is also true for water in the ground. There's a whole lot of water found in the tiny little pore spaces in the earth, enough that in this landscape that you can see in that image there, I don't know if it's, oh, there's even a pointer, this is nifty. Um, So in this landscape here, you can see, how did I get that, okay. Um, Here the areas with trees, They're about one meter taller than the wetland areas around them because they're underlain by permafrost. That permafrost lifted up the land surface. It's dry up there. Those trees have roots that access air and water. They're happy. In this wetland area, if I step there, I'm gonna sink all the way up to here in mud, right? It's soaking wet. Um, And that difference is just because of the presence or absence of permafrost. So that change in volume changes the structure of the soil itself, and of the different landscapes. There's also a change in cohesion. So if you can imagine walking across a pond or trying to, if it is not frozen, you will probably be swimming. Whereas if it is winter time, you can actually make it across. The same is true, again, for that water when it's found in pore spaces. Ice is a lot stronger than liquid water. And so as we thaw out this ice, um, either if it's like large blocks of ice here, you can see kind of this calving, there's a, a massive ice block in here. But even if that massive ice isn't present, the loss of those poor ice features causes this ground to be much less strong. So those are two images that I showed that kind of demonstrate this, but there's a whole plethora of things going on, right? So we've got these rail lines here. These are in Siberia. Um but this is impacted by that change in volume. You've got that freeze and thaw. And all of a sudden, I don't really want to see a train going down that. Here's a road from the Northwest Territories in Canada, again, affected by those same processes. This house, um, I don't, yeah, it's very not level in there. does not look like a great spot to be living. Um, again, that's just, that's built on permafrost and some parts of it thawed out. It wasn't very well insulated in the bottom. Um this house that fell off a slope from very similar processes. Up here we have catastrophic lake drainage. What does this even mean? So here there was, there's this beautiful lake that you can still see and it had a sister lake right next to it. Um, and it was held back by a dam that was core permafrost. So essentially this earth had a lot of ice in it that was holding it together. It was holding back all of the water. That ice thawed out over decades. And eventually you just didn't have enough strength and that lake burst and all of the water left in the course of, I think it was 18 minutes it took to drain. Absolutely devastating to the landscape um, just because of these changes that we're seeing. So this is movement. And in the middle, I put this picture here. This is one of my field sites. I promise I did up the station in the middle of a giant puddle, um, but it did come and almost drowned my battery. And that was very sketchy and I did not like it at all. Um, so these changes, they're happening really rapidly happening in a widespread way, certainly impacting people's livelihoods. Okay, so that's how the land is moving. How's the water moving? What changes are we seeing in water cycles? So again, I'm gonna ask a question from, does anyone know what a hydrograph is? No, cool. So hydrograph is the heartbeat of a river. So a hydrograph is the flow rate, the discharge, so that's just how much water is moving past that point at a specific time. Here you can see the course of, oopsies, I did not want to do that. Um, you can see it's over the course of an entire year. In the winter, when there's no inputs, we're talking about the forest, everything's frozen, not much is going on. You can see that there's kind of spikes up in May, which is the baiting in of the spring there that's when we're getting that snowmelt input and then it kind of peters off over the rest of the year. Now that hydrograph tells us a lot about how the system is functioning. Looking at the hydrograph can tell me where the system is in the world, where winter is, where the wet season is, all sorts of really fun and exciting stuff. But something that's very unique about this hydrograph is this kind of, this peak in the spring, it's definitely driven by snowmelt. Most hydrographs look much more flat I could include one of those but I don't it's too complicated let's not worry too much about that. We know that this hydrograph is unique and this drives some interesting and somewhat challenging things along with it. So this hydrograph is from the Liard River which joins with the Mackenzie River which flows northwards into the Beaufort Sea. Now what happens is that in the spring you're talking about snowmelt and well it gets kind of hotter in the further south regions before it does further north. Now, if you imagine that your river is flowing to the north, that means that the headwaters of your river are warming up faster and starting to flow before the mouth of the river is at all thawed or ready to accept that water, which means that you get bad problems, right? You get ice jam flooding, and this is becoming more and more frequent um, because of combinations of winter and spring effects, but generally floods are driven by extreme more of those, um, or anomalously warm springs, especially further south. And so this is a flood in Port Simpson in 2021, and this is uh, the community where I did most of my PhD. Um, and this absolutely devastated another community. Everybody was relocated from their homes. You can see that there's a ton of ice, and this is not actually where the river is supposed to be. This is a road. The river actually starts somewhere off the page here. It was truly changed Um, that community and now every spring all of the communities across the north are worried about these similar flooding events because of these changes they're really really hard to predict. Okay so then the next thing I want to talk about is contaminant movement. So we talked about how the ice in the soil makes it hard right you can't you can walk on it it's really sturdy it was holding back that lake water also has trouble moving through it. Now, what happens when this thaws out is that, well, water can flow through it and it can bring stuff along with it. So often in the far north, what was previously done was, well, you would assume is, hey, permafrost, the stuff is frozen, water doesn't flow through it. I want to get rid of some garbage. I'm going to dig a big hole over here. I'm going to dump all my garbage and I'm going to bury it and it's going to refreeze for the next millennia and I don't have to worry about that. Turns out that we really do have to worry about that. There's a lot of sort of demilitarized sites, just early warning line. This is a huge thing that we've tried to fix and put back to its original ecological state, and it's safe, but as we see these changes, as we see these increases in warming, a lot of those premises need to be questioned because this barrier to that, those contaminants is thawing out and might not be doing as good of a job as we might imagine it could be. So then, what else are we talking about? Resource movement. What do I mean when I say resource? I'm using resource in the lens that I have heard from community members. So resource is that things in the landscape that belong to that whole, that support livelihood. So things like traditional food. This um, here is NASA Earth Observatory images of um, geotagged caribou. Um, So these are the barren land caribou herds. These herds are dwindling, and their ranges are changing. So communities that relied on this for winter food sources can no longer hunt them because the communities that I'm talking about live around here, and there are no caribou around there any longer. So those traditional food sources are just not available. other, but it doesn't just stop with the caribou. The whole ecology of the system is changing. Another image of that same field site where we had this permafrost-free area. You can see this is actually a seismic cut line. So if you look off kind of into the distance, it looks almost like a road. There's a straight line that was through seismic exploration. They took down the trees in the winter. It was cut in the 70s, sometime I'm not sure when. Um, and the permafrost still hasn't recovered under it. Likely, it never will. Um, just because of the climate there. And on these sides, you can see these areas with trees that do have permafrost beneath them. So if we zoom into what does this ground actually look like, what's living there, what's going on, the ecology of the system is completely different. So if we look at this kind of wetland area, we've got mosses, we've got some cranberries here, we've got this pitcher plant, some grasses, very soggy. Again, if I walked there, I'd probably be up to my waist in mud, maybe even deeper. Same goes for the moose. It probably doesn't want to be wandering through there. The caribou also doesn't have a great time, Um, but if we then just jump up onto that plateau next to it that has those trees, we have a lichen ground cover. This is the stuff that caribou eat, so as soon as we lose the permafrost, we lose the caribou. That's what's driving those movements in this landscape, uh, the changes in those population extents. We have a completely different system, so this Movement. This change is driving all the way from the ground up, as we see the loss of permafrost. Now, the last movement that I want to talk about is the one that's probably the most interesting and important at a global scale, and that is carbon movement. So, I don't have to tell you this past year was the worst wildfire year on record. We had tons of fires. Majority of these burnt in unpopulated northern regions affected a lot of remote communities. I mean, Yellowknife was evacuated to so the Northwest Territories. was hugely devastated by that, and all of the communities that relied on Yellowknife as that center to support them were really strongly impacted. So wildfire, beyond emitting the amount of carbon that it does, it also drives a lot of anxiety in those communities because not only are they worrying about floods now every spring, but every summer, they're also worrying about whether or not their houses are gonna be burnt down by the next wildfire. But these fires actually emitted about three times the annual carbon footprint of the Canadian economy as a whole. So if we're worried about carbon caps and trading carbon and how we're managing the system, this is supposed to be a carbon sink. The boreal forest that burnt is supposed to be saving us from this. So this is a huge implication um, and a huge change that we're seeing because of these changes in climate. um, My field site, the Scotty Creek Research Station, also burnt down. Um, It burnt down in September. And the reason that they say that it burnt down is because the fire crews are laid off in the beginning of August because there are no fires after that because that's when the snow is supposed to be falling. Well, lo and behold it was very hot at the beginning of september and this feels and we we're not prepared for that because these are the changes that we're observing this is the rate at which we're observing them so it's really really fast now the last thing i want to talk about when talking about carbon is the carbon bomb has anyone heard this term before no hey something something new something new to present to you guys um so well, most of the things that I'm saying are not going to be... The next, the next part is about the things that are sort of good. Um, but this one isn't actually entirely bad. So permafrost contains the same amount of carbon as all of the living plants on Earth. So if you take all of the rainforest, add that together with all of the boreal forest and everything that has not yet burnt down, that's how much carbon there is in permafrost. So if we thaw out this permafrost... We really actually do care about where that carbon goes and how it enters the atmosphere and what that's going to look like because that is a tremendous amount of carbon. Um, And so I have a colleague, Jackie Gordiel, brilliant woman, um, and she's working on understanding what microbial activity looks like in permafrost, who's living there, and what their metabolic processes look like. So why do we care about this? Well, the way that these Microbes function determines how the carbon goes from the permafrost to the atmosphere. So it turns out that some of these actually eat methane. Methane is the strongest greenhouse gas. And some of the microbes living in permafrost, instead of farting methane, which is usually what microbes do, they actually look for methane, eat it, actually pull it out of the air and neutralize that. So we don't have to worry about it. Now that's not true for all permafrost thaw processes. Some processes emit more carbon some processes absorb more carbon but this is a really interesting problem to kind of keep a pulse on because this could be really devastating but it could also this is a great opportunity for mitigation if we think about ways to kind of prevent us from getting all of the carbon equivalent of all of the living plants on earth into the atmosphere because that could probably be a problem okay so everything is changing all of these things are pretty negative We're feeling pretty anxious about this. What can we do to stop some of these things and kind of survive in these landscapes? So there's many different engineering and other strategies here. I say mitigation through engineering, but we'll see that a lot of these are actually um, traditional knowledge from people who have experienced living on permafrost before that's going to come to the forefront. Um, But the first thing that I want to hear is thermosiphons. So these weird tubes sticking out of the ground here. They just extract heat from the ground in the winter and they refreeze it. That means that this Inuvik Regional Hospital is just fine. In the summer, it might fall out a little bit. In the winter, it's gonna freeze right back. It'll be okay. We don't have to worry about that. We put a little bit of energy into these thermosiphons, but they do the trick. We can also have raised foundations, right? Because you don't really want to be living in a house where it's very cold, but if you heat your house, that heats the ground underneath it. If the ground underneath it is frozen, that becomes a problem. So you just put your house on a bunch of barrels. You could also put them on something slightly more aesthetically pleasing. That is also allowed. But if you go to really far north communities, you'll realize that really sometimes efficiency is very expedient, and this is the way that we do things, and it works. So that is pretty great. Um, Also snow management, snow is an incredible insulator. So here is a plow on a ice road. And what they're doing is they're removing the snow from the ice road, not because it's safer to drive with no snow, it's actually probably safer to drive with snow, but the snow insulates the ice, meaning that it doesn't freeze as deep. So if you want to have this ice road work for longer, you take all the snow off so that it freezes deeper and it becomes stronger. So there's really neat snow management things you can do. Using the fact that there's polar night, we don't even really care if the surface is dark because there's no sun coming in. But in the springtime, you can go to make dark surfaces appear white. You can use it as insulation for the things you do want to keep warm. So some really neat things you can do with that. Then talking about water in the landscape, so talking about flood prediction and water management tools. Currently, I'm working on a bunch of projects on trying to understand ice jam flooding a little bit better, make open water models for a lot of the watercourses in the far north. It turns out that, like, yes, we have a lot of really great flood prediction tools for, say, southern Ontario. And even the province of Ontario as a whole. But if you then go to the province of the Northwest Territories, which has a very small fraction of the population, they have essentially no model of any river because it's just way too big and complicated. Um, and this means that it's very, very difficult to make these types of predictions. So rope in or science background is helpful in understanding what might be coming down the river. Um, so, Monitoring the water quality and bioaccumulation So fish is a huge traditional food source. And as I noted, you can have those contaminants moving through the groundwater streams. Even the surface water streams are also susceptible to these contaminated water sources. um, And bioaccumulation is a huge thing. So talking about mercury, methylmercury in fish populations, et cetera, um, and how that ends up in traditional diets is something that I have colleagues who are, are really good at looking at. Um, And then again, looking at, okay, so maybe what we shouldn't be doing is burying our garbage and saying it's going to be fine there forever. We need engineered landfills and we need remediation of these contaminated sites that's going to actually last through the changes that are expected. And then talking more on the sort of traditional aspects of looking at these problems, um, there's some really interesting literature out there on traditional land management using fire. So forest fire is not actually new. We had a giant fire year. Part of it was climate change driven. And part of it was driven by the fact that we haven't had fires in a really long time. So we keep stopping them. Um, And so there are some traditional indigenous knowledge surrounding how to use wildfire to manage your territory in such a way that it doesn't all burn down in one year. But it doesn't get this load of fuel that accumulates and you turn nutrients to the land, et cetera, to support that ecosystem more fully. Then there's harvesting and stewardship of the land. So here I have this picture of this barren land caribou, the ones that are moving northward. And here is a woodland caribou. And it turns out that the landscape that is vacated by that barren land caribou as it moves northward because it's looking for lichen and everything is really swampy. Well, the woodland caribou, for some reason, really likes very swampy ground and it's moving in. And so People are shifting their traditional food sources from this barrenland caribou to the woodland caribou. And they're complaining a lot about it because apparently the wooden caribou does not taste as good. But it does still feed them, so they are feeling okay about that. Um, but then there's also that aspect of, okay, but the woodland caribou doesn't belong here. Do we need to control this as an invasive species? Is the barrenland caribou moving northward because the woodland caribou is coming in and encroaching on their territory? What's driving this? And so there's some really interesting work to be done with communities to understand the natural dynamics there and and what their traditional knowledge on these systems and how they're evolving um, looks like. Um, And then this leads us to the question of adaptation. So adaptation and our next steps. These solutions, they're piecemeal at best, right? Like, yes, we can protect the Inuvik Hospital from any degree of permafrost thaw by pumping a lot of energy into that system, I don't know what's going to happen in 200 years. This is a band-aid solution. COP28 started yesterday, I believe, and though I would really love to be hopeful that they're going to come up with some really excellent solutions, we are not good at doing hard things. We do hard things very, very poorly. I think that you folks probably know this better than I do. And I've learned a lot from sitting in this room this morning about why it is that these things aren't working. So here I've like put a very brief timeline of climate agreements. Um, And the first one that up here is the Montreal protocol, which was to protect the hole in the ozone layer. On this slide, that's the only thing that actually worked. And why did it work? Because it was super easy. We're like, hey, CFCs, these stuff, this stuff is bad. Here's this other stuff you can use to keep your food cool. Use this, it won't give you cancer, and you will no longer have a hole in the ozone layer. We used the other stuff. It took us 30 some years, but hey, the hole in the ozone layer is closing. We can change. It is possible to affect change. But then all of these other things happened where we're like, okay, there's this, you know, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement. We have this problem. We all agree we need to solve it. And then, what do we do? I don't really know. So, the extent to which current and future generations will experience a hotter and different world depends on, really, the choices that we made yesterday, certainly the ones we're making now, and the ones that we make in the short term. And so, this time for change and for Actually, doing something about it is largely in the past, but certainly in the present, because adaptation isn't really a solution everywhere. If I look at the idea of adaptation and saying, "Hey, we're just going to continue emitting stuff, and the Earth is going to get hotter," and then I translate that back to the northern remote communities that I work with, I think about the basic needs to just survive. Right. So let's go back to biology: the carrying capacity of a landscape that you're able to get food to eat, you're able to drink clean water, you have a safe place to live, and you might have sources of, because we're humans, we need electricity, energy, something to kind of heat our houses with, get to the internet to watch our fun cat videos, whatever it takes. Some of these things, if you have such land movement that you can't get fuel to a community, if you have a degree of pollution that's coming from some of these sources, it's honestly not gonna be easy to adapt to those changes. Mitigation is likely easier, it's gonna take less resources. How do we actually make this happen? And so, this is why I've enjoyed sitting in this room so much this morning, because this is actually the first time, and I didn't, I wrote this slide before coming here, right? So, in my mind, the solutions need to simultaneously address thousands of opposing problems around the globe in a simultaneous, coordinated, and self amplifying way. And today is the first time I've actually heard people talking. In this simultaneous and coordinated way, and presenting different sides that are completely disjoint of the picture and working together on how we could implement these things at once and how people might react and how this would be adopted. But the thing, the caveat I want to add to this, based on my discussion of CFCs, is that it has to be easier than the alternative, right? Because we're not gonna do something as long as the alternative is easier. And for me, sitting here in Kingston, I don't see the rail line that's preventing the people in Siberia from getting fuel to their community, and I will never care unless I see it. And so talking about things being easier than the alternative is the only way to get people to act. And I'm super excited that you folks are here and thinking about this problem, because as an engineer... I don't know the answer, but I will continue to try to innovate, and if you can tell me how to get people to adopt these solutions, I will be forever in your debt. So that's where I'm going to leave it, if there's any questions, comments.